Good morning. Please open your Bibles with me to the book of the prophet Micah and chapter 4. I'm glad to be back from my younger sister's wedding, which was technically the wedding of a member of this church because Brendan uh, asked to retain his membership here until he settled in a church there, and there was a lot of settling that had to take place as they moved and all these things and just got married. So one of our members just got married, actually. But I'm glad to be home and back with you. And back in Micah, chapter 4, if you recall, in our study of the first three chapters of the book of Micah, the, the main theme or emphasis, the main content of these chapters has been uh, Micah's exposing the sins of the kingdoms of Israel in the north and Judah in the south and declaring judgment and destruction upon these nations or on these kingdoms as a consequence for their sin, as well as a few announcements of God's future deliverance of them. And Micah 1 through 3 was really three chapters basically about the same thing in all three chapters. In Micah chapter 4, we're going to see a change in perspective, uh, as well as somewhat of a change in emphasis, as Micah begins to present uh, a much larger period of time and a much larger plan uh, that God is making known to his people. So Micah 1 through 3 is rather zoomed in. Israel, Judah, this is why you are guilty and this is why you're going to be judged by God Micah 4 zooms out in a, in a big way in terms of timeline and in terms of God's plans. So what we're going to do is to read through Micah 4 and to make comments as we're reading through so that we understand the reading as best as possible. And you need to understand as we read Micah 4 just two simple things. One is that uh, this is a prophecy of future events. And when the prophets speak of future events, it's oftentimes like skipping a stone on a lake where it it hits at different points along the timeline in the future. However, you also need to understand that it's like skipping a stone that doesn't necessarily go in consecutive skips. It does the first skip at the end, and then it comes to the middle, and it, it moves around. It's a very strange skipping stone. And the other thing that you need to understand is that we're going to include Micah chapter 5 and verse 1 in our reading, because it most likely belongs best to Micah chapter 4. In the Hebrew Bible, that would be where Micah 4 ends, although it's certainly a a transition into Micah chapter 5. But our reading will do all of chapter 4 and the first verse of chapter 5. This is the word of God. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem." He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations 
far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. But they shall sit, every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God. But we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Let's pause our reading through the chapter and make a few comments uh, to explain what we are reading. What do you see in Micah chapter 4? What is being presented to us? Remember that Jerusalem is a very large hill. It's a city built on a hill, sometimes called a a mountain, Mount Zion. Uh, We may think of mountains like Everest or the Alps or something really gigantic, and Jerusalem's not on that scale, but it's a very tall mount. It's a very tall hill, and the Temple of Solomon, God's temple, was constructed at the summit of the hill, the highest place in Jerusalem. And so in Micah chapter 5, it is telling us, it is giving us a scene, it's painting a picture that the mountain of the house of the Lord, Jerusalem itself, and the the temple mount is going to be raised up. You see the, the mountain growing and growing and growing until it's the biggest mountain in all of the world in such a way that people see it and are shocked by it and they are attracted, they are drawn to it and they say, let's go up this highest of mountains at the summit of which is the temple of God in which dwells God himself. Let's go there. So Micah chapter 4 in these first verses envisions Jerusalem, in particular the temple mount, rising and growing and ascending, becoming larger and larger, and then the nations flow to it. They are drawn up into the temple of God. Now, it's important that we understand that when a word like the nations is used, it's emphasizing, this this seems overly simple, but it's important, it's emphasizing not Jews, not the people of Abraham, not the people of the Abrahamic and Mosaic and Davidic covenants, people who are not from Israel and not from Judah. These are the ones coming to the mountain of the Lord, ascending the mountain of the Lord and entering into his house and being taught by him. Micah sees the nations traveling to enter into God's temple on God's mount. And what we see as a a result is a a state of peace and safety in verses 3 and 4. An idyllic uh, and like uh, a perfected envisioning of life where tools of war are converted into tools of cultivation. You have swords and you have spears with uh, iron tips, iron blades, and these things can be reforged into other instruments such as plowshares and pruning hooks. I was going to use this to kill and conquer, but instead I'll use this to cultivate and to prune. We're going to clear fields, plow them. We're going to prune trees to have figs and to have uh, grapes. And in fact, we see there's no need for a sword or a spear because it says there will be no one to make them afraid. There's no one to hurt you. This is the per- a vision of the perfect life for a Mediterranean person. The Mediterranean person says, all I want 
is my own vine and my own fig tree. They're like an American that says, I just want my own house with a pool, and then I'll be happy. Well, the Mediterranean person says, I want wine, and I want figs, and I'm good. And that's what this says. And it envisions such a perfect life because they're sitting down under the shade of these trees. Other parts of the scriptures talk about a vineyard. And what do people do when they construct a vineyard? They put walls around it and a watchtower because it's a very precious resource that everyone wants and you need to protect it. And you're worried, will people come and steal my grapes and therefore steal my wine? Well, this is saying you can just plow the field, plant the trees, prune the trees, and sit down and enjoy them. When you get to plant a place and enjoy its fruit and sit in peace without worrying that anyone's going to attack you, this is Micah portraying perfect life. No threats, enjoyment, relaxation, rest, and pleasure and delight. You may say, well, when will this take place? Micah says, in the latter days, in the latter days. So we've seen in verses 1 through 5 that the nations come to God's mountain and there's this resulting state of peace and security and enjoyment. Well, verses 6 and 7 speak of the remnant of the exiled Israelites also coming to the mountain of God as they return to Mount Zion. Verses 6 and 7 In that day, also looking forward, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off, a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. These are the Jews. This is God bringing his people Back to his mountain, to Mount Zion, those who are lame, they cannot walk, they cannot bring themselves. Those who have been afflicted and they're tired and weary, God says, I will bring you back. I will make you a strong nation again, and I will rule over you in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And verse 8 promises that not only will the people return and and be governed by God, ruled by God on his mountain, but also the king shall return. And you, verse 8, and you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come, the former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem, the return of the king. But prophecies are like dream sequences. When you tell someone about a dream that you had, all you can say is, well, and then this happened. I can't explain why, it just suddenly this is what was happening next. And in fact, many prophecies are communicated to the prophets through dreams. And so when they write them down and give them to us, they play out like dream sequences that move rapidly from one thing to the next, from one place to the next, from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows and all around and everything in between. So verses one through eight are looking at a future time, the latter days, the the rising and ascending of the mountain of God, the flowing of the nations to it, the bringing of the remnant of the Jews into God's mountain and his house, peace and security, the return of the king. And then in verses 9 and following, there's still a looking ahead, but it makes it clear that for there to be a return of the king, the king must depart first. In In order for something to be restored, it must first be lost. So verse 9 is a 
a, a harsh transition. Now, not the latter days, but now, why do you cry aloud? Someone saying, someone weeping and wailing, ah, is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. So, like I said in a dream sequence, a sudden, almost shocking shift, where for now, even though it's not literally in the moment that Micah is writing this, but in Micah's lifetime and in the lifetime of the Jews that are then living, they will have to pass through the loss of their king and their departure from Jerusalem, and they're going to dwell in an open country and to Babylon, as well as further dream shifting, and there you shall be rescued, the Lord will redeem you. So it's looking at a time when Jerusalem is defeated, the king is no longer dwelling there, but then fast forwarding 70 years more when Israel will be returned and restored out of Babylon. And then as we proceed in verses 11 and following, uh, there's a similar declaring of judgment upon Israel mixed with other declarations of God's judgment on Israel's enemies who have judged them and Israel being defeated in one verse and triumphing in the next verse. It's, it's a, a very mixed and mingled portrayal of the future. Verses 11 and following. Now many nations are assembled against you saying, let her be defiled and let, her, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. They want to, to lay it bare and, and do all that they want to the city. Verse 12, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hoofs bronze and you shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the Lord their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth now muster your troops O daughter of troops siege is laid against us with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek notice the back and forth verse 11 the nations are assembled against you verse 13 you will destroy the nations and plunder them Verse 1 of chapter 5, now the, now the siege is upon you, Israel. It's moving back and forth, isn't it? So like I said at the outset, Micah 4 throws a skipping stone that does not skip in a straight line. It skips in many different places along God's timeline and the things that he will cause to come to pass. Well, what can we learn from Micah chapter 4. We've walked through the text briefly and rather quickly, but what can, we, what can we learn from it? How does this apply to us? I'd like to give you four lessons from Micah chapter 4. In the first place, read the Bible as a united plan. Read the Bible as a united plan. 
If you read Micah chapter 4 on your own, you may find parts of it quite confusing, difficult to understand, uh, somewhat dark to your mind. Not that there's a darkness in the scriptures themselves, but we often struggle to see the light of the scriptures for various reasons, whether it's simply our own human weakness, possibly even sin at times. And in our confession of faith in chapter one of the Holy Scriptures, one of the things that we confess, one of the things that we acknowledge is that not all parts of the scriptures are as clear as other parts. Everything that we need to know to be saved from our sins and to serve God acceptably is clearly set down in the scriptures so clearly that anyone can understand it who takes the time to study the word of God. You don't need uh, letters behind your name. You don't need a degree to understand salvation and obedience to God from the scriptures. But there are other things that God reveals in his word that are not so easily perceived or understood. And how can we better understand those darker places of scripture, such as dreamlike prophecy? Well, one of the ways to better understand portions of the word of God, like Micah chapter 4, is to read the Bible as a united plan, to read it as a united whole, to say, I know God's master plan, I know God's big plan, his general plan for all time, and so therefore I'm going to fit this particular portion of scripture into that larger plan and thus make more sense of it in my own mind. And we can do this, or I can help you to do this uh, under this point. It's to show you how you can better understand Micah 4 by reading it in light of the larger teaching of the scriptures and God's master plan. I'd like you to please turn with me to the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Because this, in, this method presupposes that you know what God's master plan is, that you know what his purposes are. And we know them because he's revealed them to us. In fact, Paul said, it's my job to do this, and I love doing it. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, and then we'll read more in chapter 3 of Ephesians. If someone asks you what's God's overall plan, what's his ultimate end, there would be different ways to describe it, different words that we could use that would be legitimate. But one way to express it is the way that Paul does in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10, where he says, he speaks of a plan for the fullness of time. Okay, that's cosmic, universal, all-time language. What is God's plan for the fullness of time? It is this, to unite all things in Jesus Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. When Paul says to unite, he's, he's speaking of bringing to consummation, bringing all things to a perfect unity. This is where they're all supposed to be. And Paul speaks in universal terms, not just the fullness of time, but all things celestial and terrestrial. He says to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Everything that's been created in all time, God will bring it all to unity and finality in Jesus Christ. So that's the master plan. That's the general plan. If all things come to unity, 
there are preceding unions in the flow chart that lead into that ultimate unity. And we can see one of those in Ephesians chapter 3. So if we zoom into God's plan of bringing all things to union and unity and finality, we can see that there is another union which Paul describes. And he describes it by calling it the mystery of Christ. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 4 through 11. Paul says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Let's pause. Paul is saying that God has made the mystery of Christ known in the Old Testament, in the times before the apostles, but not with the same clarity and openness that now he has made it known through the apostles and the church. Paul, therefore, is revealing with greater clarity and openness and directness what God had already revealed previously in a mysterious way. Well, what is the mystery that's no longer a mystery? Verse 6. This mystery, which is no longer a mystery, is that the Gentiles, the nations, are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Jews, Gentiles, united, brought together with the same privileges, the same inheritance, the same precious Beautiful salvation in the gospel of Jesus Christ, all in the same standing. Notice, members of the same body. The plan of God is to bring all things to union in Christ Jesus. One of the unions that leads to that ultimate union is the union of Jews and Gentiles in Christ Jesus in the church. Verse 7 and following. Of this gospel, of this wonderful good news for the world, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Notice that language, verse 9, plan of the mystery hidden for ages. Verse 10, the manifold wisdom of God. Verse 11, the eternal purpose. What does all this tell you? There has never been a time when this was not the plan. This has What you see now, Paul is saying, Jews and Gentiles united in the church under Christ Jesus was always the plan. God has no plan Bs. God has no alternatives or contingencies. God has an eternal purpose, and he realizes, he brings to reality his eternal purpose. And so the mystery of Christ was a mystery in the Old Testament revealed obscurely, darkly. But in the New Testament, it's, a, it's an unveiled mystery. It's the gospel for everyone, as Paul says. Now, are we preaching from Ephesians 3 or Micah 4? Let's go back to Micah chapter 4. 
What does Micah 4 describe? Well, there's this mountain that gets really high, and what is it showing? What is it portraying? There are a whole host of biblical themes that run through many books of scripture that are all passing through Micah 4 right now, and we don't have time to chase them all or trace them all. But the idea of the, the mountain of God and the house of God and the people of God in it is one of the major themes of scripture. And what God is showing is that his plan for the fullness of time, in the latter days these things will take place, thus says the Lord, is that Jews and Gentiles will be brought together in the house of God, in God's presence and under his government, under his dominion, under his kingship. Jews and Gentiles. You see, you and me, we are in Micah chapter 4. We are the nations who ascend the mountain of God and enter into his house. Because when Jesus ascended into heaven and he established his church through Pentecost and through his apostles, he brought his people into the mountain of the Lord. He entered into the mountain of the Lord and we are united with him. The scriptures say we are seated with him in the heavenly places. He has brought us into the highest house of God, in the highest place of all creation. And who gets to be there? Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, Jew or Greek, without respect to obedience to the, Ju the, the not judicial, the uh, Jewish Mosaic laws. You don't have to practice or keep the law of circumcision or the dietary restrictions or the animal sacrifices and so on and so forth. Those things were temporary for a time and for a purpose, but those things have been taken away and Jews and Gentiles together ascend the mountain of God by faith in Christ and enter into his temple. Now the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, misunderstood this. And they thought this was a deviation and a detour and a betrayal. No, no, no. The blessing for the Gentiles is that they get to keep the Mosaic law. And Paul said, no, you don't understand. Paul said, look at what God revealed to us before. What did Paul do when he would go into a city? He'd go into the synagogue and he would reason with them from the Old Testament that Jesus is the Christ. And he would use passages like this, like Micah 4 and many others to prove no, Jews and Gentiles together on the same standing in the church. This is God's master plan, and it always has been. Now, you can read these verses and understand them more easily because the fulfillment of prophecy is greater than the language of prophecy in many cases. Why? Because prophets describe perfect futures in the language of perfect presence. They take the present, that's what they know, and they imagine it idealized and perfected, and that is how they portray the future. So each man sitting under his fig tree with his vine, eating figs and, eating figs and drinking wine, the perfect present life is how they envision the perfection of all things in the future. And the fulfillment is far greater than the imagery. The future perfect, or the perfect future, is better than the present. I'm losing my language here. Better than the perfect present. 
And so Jerusalem is not going to become some mega mountain. Rather, Jesus will ascend to heaven and the church will reach the whole earth. Didn't Jesus tell a parable about a tree that starts really small and then it grows and grows and grows and fills the whole world? It's another way of presenting the same thing. So we need to read the Bible as a united plan. If you come to Micah 4 with the master plan of God, not that we've somehow cleverly made up, but that Paul has plainly revealed for us, and we say, okay, I know where this all ends. I know that God has no detours, no deviations, no contingencies, no plan Bs. This must fit into that plan. Then Micah 4, verses 1 through 7 and so on, makes perfect sense. Oh, this is the the calling of the Gentiles, the inclusion of Jews and Gentiles, the remnant of Jews, that's the believing Jews, and the believing Gentiles who enter the house of the Lord together. That's Paul, and that's me. That's the Jews and the Gentiles in the church under Christ Jesus. And Micah 1, or excuse me, Micah 1, 4, Micah 4, verses 1 and following, it sees the future perfect in two stages. Because the Jews and Gentiles are already filling the house of God. But he also sees that final consummation of all things, doesn't he? The prophets are seeing multiple futures that are difficult for them to distinguish how far off one part is from another. We're already in Micah 4, verses 1 through 7, but there's still a not yet to Micah 4, 1 through 7, because I don't know about you, but I'm not under my vine and fig tree right now. (laughs) In other words, the consummation and new creation has not yet been brought into reality. That would be Christ's second coming, but it has been inaugurated. Why? That future perfect glory has already been inaugurated in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because there lives one man with a human nature that is incorruptible and immortal, not subject to decay or decomposition, not subject to the entropy of mortality that we all suffer. Jesus Christ, in his resurrection, he inaugurated a glory that never fades. He inaugurated a life that never ends. He inaugurated that future perfection that he will return to bring to its consummation. But it has already begun. Now the scriptures are useful for many things. One of them is for correction. And this is an area where we can offer a gentle and brotherly correction to our dispensational brothers, and I I use that word very intentionally, our, our brothers, who see the Jews as having a distinct destiny in God's plan, or some of them who see the church as a parenthesis to his plans for Israel. But the church is not a parenthesis, it's the pinnacle. It is the union. And the Jews and the Gentiles do not have disparate or distinct or even parallel destinies, they have one destiny to be brought into the house of God on the mountain of the Lord, which is what Jesus has done through his church. It is the same inheritance for all. It is the plan for the fullness of time. Let me offer you a few scripture passages for your own study on your own time. If you want to see other parts of the Old Testament that also announced the inclusion of the Gentiles beforehand, Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. 
if you read Isaiah chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, you'll think, man, I've read this somewhere. It's the same as Micah 4. Isaiah and Micah have nearly identical texts here. Isaiah 2, 1 to 4, and Micah 5, uh, the beginning verses. Someone copied someone. It's the same Holy Spirit working in both of them. But it's very rare for prophets to have the same text in their writings. But this is one of them. That makes Micah 4 very special. That It's these, this first section, not the whole chapter, about the mountain of God being lifted up, or the mountain of Jerusalem lifted up, the temple of God and the nations uh, flowing to it. Isaiah says it, and they were contemporaries. Who, who, who copied whom? I'm not sure. The same spirit. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10, makes it clear. We don't have time to chase and trace. 11, 1 through 10 makes it clear that one of the reasons why the nations are drawn to the mountain of God is because the king is there. They're drawn to Jesus Christ. Isaiah 56, verses 6 through 8 And Haggai 2, verses 6 through 9. Read the Bible as a united plan. And the more you study these parts in light of the whole, the more you see it all fit together, and the easier it becomes to drop into something like Micah 4 and make sense of it. Let's proceed to our second of four lessons, which will not be as lengthy as the first. Number two. First, Babylon, then bliss. Among the various future events that Micah announces, not all of them are pleasant. Not all of them are fig trees and wine. In verse 8, Micah says that a king shall return to Jerusalem and bring about this time of glory. The return of the king is the initiation of glory. But then in verses 9 through 10, Micah says, Jerusalem must pass through exile in Babylon first. And this is most certainly and quite directly a prediction of the defeat of Jerusalem and their later return from exile after a 70-year period. But it is also a picture of the church on earth prior to Christ's return. Think about our study in 1 Peter. How does Peter speak about Christians? How does he deal with us? We've seen many examples in 1 Peter that he deals with us as strangers, sojourners, and exiles. And he uses that language because we are in Babylon for now. We are not yet at that heavenly Jerusalem. Yes, we are in the church. Yes, we are by virtue of union with Christ. But not in a final way, not in a realized way. For now, we must pass through exile in Babylon. For now, we must dwell in a city of which we are not really citizens. Yes, we are, but we are also citizens of a heavenly country and a heavenly kingdom. And so we need to understand where we are, that we are in Babylon. And what does Peter say? He says, while you're here, you need to be good witnesses. You need to be the best husbands and wives, the best parents, the best workers, the best uh, employers, and so on and so forth. He tells us to have a good testimony among the Gentiles while we live among them. But I want to emphasize more so here that 
Micah chapter 4 announces this future glory, this future bliss to comfort us while we are in Babylon, to help us to endure and persevere so that as we lament, oh, how I remember Jerusalem, oh, how I remember the former glory, perhaps we don't think in those terms, but we can look forward to the future glory. God gives us a very clear picture. These things will come to pass, and they are for you. This is for you. This is not describing something that someone else will enjoy and experience. This is describing what my people will experience, says God. So he writes this for our consolation. He writes this to us for our comfort. The Spirit speaks through Micah and says, Comfort my people while they are in exile. Although they are in Babylon for now, tell them that it will come to an end and there will be bliss afterwards because this future is not suspended on some unstable possibility or undetermined condition or unforeseeable contingency. Rather, the Lord says, these things shall come to pass. And he says there will be a time where there is no war and there will be a time when there is no one to make you afraid. There will be a time when you, so to speak, sit under your fig tree and in the shade of your vine. Look at verses 3 and 5 and 7 that speak of a time forevermore. In verse, in verse 3, there shall never again be war. They shall not learn war anymore. You say to someone, let's make weapons and go fight someone. They'd say to you, what's that? <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. The thought, the idea of attacking and destroying and taking and plundering and murdering, it wouldn't even enter someone's mind. Verse 5, the idolatry of the nations comes to an end. We will walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. But what about this other God? But what about this other thing? Wouldn't even enter into my mind. I will walk in the name of the Lord forever and ever. Verse 7, God will reign over his people in Zion forevermore. But what if someone comes? Not possible. He will reign over us forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, this is a consolation and a comfort. We're in Babylon for now. And the Lord gives us many comforts here. And there are many who suffer far worse than we do in so many different ways. But for all that we do suffer and will suffer, we can remember that first we pass through Babylon and then bliss. How long was Israel's exile? 70 years. A life is 70 years. What is a life of, what is an exile of 70 years compared to a forevermore of peace and safety and bliss? (laughs) The balance will break. (laughs) It will be so weighted to eternal glory that the 70 years of earthly exile and affliction just fly out of the balance as the balance is instantly broken by the eternal weight. And so we need to be calmed and quieted. Don't be afraid. Do not be afraid. And we need to do as God told the Israelites to do, to submit to exile. He told them, if you surrender to the Babylonians, they won't destroy you, they will deport you. Submit to exile, live in Babylon, and I'll bring you back. So also here, we're not at war with Babylon around us. Rather, we live for the good of the city as faithful citizens of this this country and this 
this state, etc. But we're not afraid. We're not afraid. We live here peaceably and honorably in Babylon, knowing with certainty that there is bliss awaiting us afterwards. It is prepared for us, and he is preparing us for it. Jesus Christ has begun it, and he will bring it to completion. Do you believe that? Do you believe there is a future glory, there is a bliss after Babylon for me, and that Jesus has already begun it? He has indeed already begun it in me through regeneration, the power of the resurrection already at work in my soul. And the power of the resurrection will be at work in my body on that day when he returns. Thirdly, third lesson, God's wisdom and providence surpass understanding. God's wisdom and providence surpass understanding. In verses 11 through the end of the chapter, including verse 1 of chapter 5, we see Israel under attack. They're losing, they're winning. It's a back and forth. But in particular, I want to focus on verse 12, where the nations who assemble themselves to defile and despoil Israel, it says in verse 12, they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. They gather themselves for slaughter, and in so doing, they gather themselves to be slaughtered. We could spend a lot of time here, but what I want us to see is the comfort that this brings to us, to be reminded once again that though God permits sin in the world, by not restraining it. He does not permit it as in giving permission, but God allows sin to happen by not restraining man from sin at times. He does restrain quite a lot of sin. God, whatever sin God permits, he permits with an overarching and controlling providence and sovereignty that ultimately uses the sin and wickedness of man to accomplish his own purposes of saving his people and increasing the condemnation of the wicked. And this is what the prophet Habakkuk came to realize, isn't it? That although God used a wicked nation such, like, such as the Babylonians, although they were his instrument, he was overriding their sin so that it would ultimately accomplish his purposes and God would not fail to punish them. Isn't it Paul who marveled at the intricacy and complexity and harmony and irony of God's purposes in Romans 11, where he concludes, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? It's similar to Micah 4.12. They do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. God's providence and sovereignty surpass our understanding, but we trust him because we've seen this take place in history. We could give many other examples, but the Babylonians did what they wanted to do. With the freedom that God gives to man, they acted within their power, within their volition. They chose to come and destroy Jerusalem, and God permitted it. But God also judged them and destroyed them for their sin. And so we can trust that whatever God, whatever God permits in this life, in terms of the sin of others or the sorrows and afflictions that he sends our way, 
there is an overarching providence and sovereignty that is working all things together for good and that there will be no sin that goes unpunished. There will be no threads or strands in God's plans that were untrimmed and left unkept or unfinished. Now, we've said that God's providence and sovereignty surpass understanding. His plans are beyond our comprehension because we're creatures and he's the creator. But we should not fail to know what he has revealed to us. Do you know the thoughts of the Lord? Well, he has revealed to us this. He has made his thoughts known in this way. He has said, bow to my king, Jesus Christ, or be destroyed. Bow to Jesus or be condemned. God has made known salvation in Christ Jesus and condemnation for all those who are outside of Christ Jesus. And so if we would escape Babylon and enter into bliss, then we must abandon our sin and turn to Jesus. But the connection I want to make here is what if you, knowing this, choose to fight it? What if you say, well, God has actually made his thoughts known, salvation in Christ, condemnation outside of Christ. I'm going to try to override this. I have a way out. I have something I can say or something I can do that can avoid this dire alternative. This ultimatum I'm going to reject and choose a different path. Do you think that you could possibly succeed in overriding the creator and sustainer and governor of all the universe? Is that possible? Even when the Babylonians gave themselves over to sin, they were still accomplishing God's purposes. And you think, perhaps in some strange and foolish way, that you can overpower the Almighty? It is not possible. If you assemble yourself to slaughter, if you go your way, you go his way, and you assemble yourself for slaughter. You cannot choose a path that does not end with God's sovereign purpose coming to pass. All things lead to salvation or judgment, and the way to both is clearly revealed. Salvation for all who come to Christ and judgment for all who do not. Fourthly and lastly, admire and adore your God. Admire and adore your God. What's the most beautiful part of Micah chapter 4? As in our weakness and possibly even sin, we would say, all the great things that I'm going to enjoy in the consummation. My fig tree, my vine. And those are blessings indeed, are they not? Which are, of course, metaphors for the delights that God gives us in the new creation. But what's the real beauty? What's the real blessing? Why would you bother to ascend the highest mountain on earth? We have some hikers and sort of mountain climbers in our church. 
Why do they do that? I don't know. <laughs> they do that because there's, there's beauty and majesty in nature, and they want to go see it and enjoy it. But there's only certain mountains they climb. Why isn't everyone trying to climb Mount Everest? Well, it's because once you get to the top of it, you say, now what do we do? <laughs> there's nothing here. Uh, it's a beautiful view. I'm glad I did this. Let's get out of here before we die. <laughs> the reason people aren't constantly climbing mountains is because there's nothing on top of them. So why would all the nations ascend the mountain of the Lord when it's the highest of highest mountains? It's because there's a house on top of it. And what's in the house? What are temples for? You go inside a temple, and in the heart of every temple is what? The God of the temple. And all the idols of the nations are statues. They're wooden stone overlaid with gold and silver. But what is in the temple of God? It is God's presence. And so when we hear of entering into the temple of God on the mountain of the Lord, what delights us? What ravishes the soul? What satisfies the soul? Is God himself. That is the bliss after Babylon. That is the true glory, not some created glory and a good thing that God gives to delight his creatures, something infinitely superior to that. God himself. Verse 5, to walk in his name forevermore is our blessing. To be governed and ruled by him, verse 7, forevermore, that is the blessing. That is the bliss. And so we ought to admire and adore our God. To adore in the sense of, yes, a heart love, but even more a worship, an awe, and a reverence, a bowing before him. We've seen in this chapter his sovereignty and his providence as he works all things together. This goes with his omnipotence and his wisdom to know what is the best end and the best way to arrive at that end and to have omnipotence to cause it all to be. We've seen his majesty and his glory and his holiness as he judges and rules the nations. If it is not God that attracts the nations to the mountain, then it's just any other mountain. It's just the biggest of the big mountains. That's not enough to get me to climb it. That doesn't attract me. But you know, if someone said to us, at the summit of Mount Everest is the true presence of, of God that will delight you and satisfy you forever, we would all book our tickets today if we truly believed it. If we said, the presence of God that satisfies forever and gives eternal life, I'm going now. Brothers and sisters, it's coming. We've, we, it's our inheritance. God himself. There's no created thing that can satisfy the soul enlighten the mind, conform the will, and delight the affections other than the creator himself. And he has given himself to us. He has given himself to us. We don't have to say, well, in addition to these things, can we have you too, God? He gives himself to us. He is the gift and the giver. And the glory of heaven is God and God incarnate. Jesus Christ, our God in the flesh, who ascended the mountain of the Lord, who opened the way for us, who sat us down there and gave us that glorious inheritance through his death and his life. 
Micah therefore depicts us delighting in worshiping our God, admiring our God, adoring God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit forever and ever and ever. And to just make it better, we can begin to enjoy God and his presence and adore and admire and worship him now and in his temple, the church, where he dwells, in his word, in his ordinances, among his people. This is where we begin to rehearse and practice for that wonderful eternal bliss that he has prepared for us. And so we ought to enter into the church uh, connecting to the future. We ought to enter into the church connecting with heaven and admiring and adoring our God for all that he has done and all that he will do because these things shall certainly come to pass. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for Micah chapter 4 and these wonderful and beautiful and precious promises of what you will cause to be And we thank you that you have already initiated and inaugurated it in your son, Jesus Christ, who sits at your right hand and in whose name we offer all our prayers and all our worship and all our good works. We thank you that this resurrection life, this eternal life is already at work in our souls through regeneration and sanctification. We thank you that we have the promise of the resurrected body in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have given us the church to gather into one body, Jews and Gentiles, under one head, Jesus Christ. We thank you for all of these wonderful and precious things. While we live here in Babylon, we pray that you would help us to be patient, to be content, and to be good citizens, to be faithful witnesses, to have honorable conduct among the Gentiles. We pray, Lord, that you would also comfort us that you would give us peace, uh, that we might be faithful during this time. We ask for your help, and we ask for a greater sense of your presence and a greater awe of your majesty. Do these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.